Well, I think our praise band is going to have to learn a new song if Randy's the commander-in-chief. So I look forward to that being added. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? We're going to read from Psalm 14. Psalm 14. And if you need a pew Bible, it's there in the pew in front of you, page 534. Psalm 14. This is God's word. Listen to him as he speaks to us. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have given us your words spoken by your spirit that can pierce to the very depths of our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you are the true God. And you do exist and live and speak and act and intervene in our world and our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would make hard hearts soften this morning. We pray that you would focus the distracted. Lord, I pray that we would put away technology and not let some man-made piece of equipment come between us and your word. Father, we ask, Lord, that we will be more than hearers of your word. We pray that we'll be doers of it. And as Israel of old, when you act, to save and to deliver, we can rejoice because of the goodness in your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, as we continue on in our Summer in the Psalm series, we today turn our attention to the folly of the fool here in Psalm 14. With that in mind, perhaps we should begin by asking a simple question, what is a fool? The dictionary defines fool as a person who acts unwisely or imprudently, a silly person, one who lacks judgment or prudence, someone who keeps making bad decisions. Ben Franklin once said, any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most fools do. In fact, if you're a Star Trek fan, Obi-Wan Kenobi asks, who's the more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? And my all-time favorite is Mark Twain, said it best, 
I was young and foolish then, now I'm just older and foolisher. Now, if truth be told, we all have our opinions of the fool. But Psalm 14, it shatters any and all stereotypes that we may have of what a fool is and who fools are. Psalm 14 here, it actually gives us God's perspective of the fool. In fact, God gives us a perspective of the fool that if we will listen this morning, will challenge not just how we see the folly of other people, but Psalm 14 here will actually challenge how we see the folly of ourselves. And what we see here in Psalm 14 is that only a fool denies there is a God. As David writes here in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, one thing we need to understand when it comes to the book of Psalms is that the Psalms begin with a contrast. You go to Psalm 1 and it states it there for us, a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And that contrast is a theme that flows all through the Psalms, all 150 chapters. We have actually seen over the course of our study here in Psalms, especially 4, 5, 6, and 7, this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And the focus of Psalm 14 is on the wicked, but it's in a way that reveals to us what it means for the wicked to live as a fool. When David talks about the fool here, He's talking about the atheist who simply says in his heart, there is no God. But do not think he's talking about the theoretical atheist or even the intellectual atheist. He's talking specifically about the practical atheist. He's not describing the dogmatic atheist who is making this declaration against the very existence of God. Rather, David is describing the practical atheist who lives as if there is no God. In its simplest form, atheism is it's just a worldview that says there is no God. And then it lives life from that perspective. And this form of atheism is widely prevalent in our culture today. What this means is that the vast majority of the human race must be classified as what? Fools. Since they tried to deny that God exists, and then they live as if he does not exist. And because that is the way they live, and that is their worldview, let me tell you, God here says through the who de- through David, that their way, their walk, their life is corrupt and it is wicked. This also means that Psalm 14 is one of the strongest passages in all of God's Word about the very depravity of human na- man, the human race. And yet, what we see all through the Psalms, and even here in Psalm 14, is that there's another group of people in the world. And that is the righteous people who, by the grace of God, have entered into a relationship with him through faith in his son and have now been declared righteous. And so while this psalm focuses on the wicked and the foolish part of their lives, the folly of the wicked, there's still yet another group that God 
saves out of their foolishness or folliness. Now, what is also interesting is this psalm is actually repeated two more times in Scripture. You may be, why is that? Well, because I think God knows how foolish we really are. God knows we need to hear this more than once. And so he repeats it three times. In fact, Psalm 14 is repeated by David in Psalm 53. It's also uh, the most important part of this psalm here is repeated by the Apostle Apostle himself in the New Testament there in Romans chapter 3. And again, you may say, what is the big deal? Why is that such a big deal? Well, think about it. The Bible's a rather big book. And there's not many things in the Bible that are said word for word more than once. And so when the words are repeated, it's for emphasis. God is making a point. It's important. And he's trying to get our attention. So when God speaks once, yes, we should listen. But when God speaks twice, we should be sure to listen. We should even remember what he says. But when God speaks three different times and says the same thing, we should not only listen, but we should take his words to heart. We should ponder them, meditate upon them, and never let them go. And that's what I hope we will do here this morning. And so let's unpack, let's discover what the folly of the fool is all about here in Psalm 14. And what we see from the beginning is that the fool rejects, or if you want to write, denies the reality of God. The fool rejects the reality of God. Now, the Hebrew word for fool here in the psalm is Nabal. In fact, why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, don't be a Nabal. In other words, don't be a fool, because that's what the word means, Nabal. And let me tell you, that word, Nabal, implies aggressive perversity, and it is epitomized in the Nabal of 1 Samuel 25. If there is a backstory to this psalm, Nabal may very well be it, for he personifies the fool. Now, I don't know what his parents were thinking when they named him a fool, Nabal, but perhaps it was a nickname that he had earned over time. Anyway, Nabal had a beautiful wife named Abigail. And to make a long story short, Nabal lived up to his name when he turned his back on David's goodness and actually caused David a lot of grief. And so God struck him dead, and David ended up taking Abigail as his wife. David defines a fool here as someone who says in his heart, there is no God. Now, the word fool does not mean someone who's dumb. doesn't mean stupid. In fact, as the word is used in the Bible, a fool may be anybody who's quite intelligent. They may be well-educated, even very articulate, and even likable. And that makes him or her all the more dangerous to himself or herself as well as to others. In fact, the chief characteristic of the fool is the heartfelt decision to live a godless life as if there is no God. That's what marks the fool. In fact, the Bible tells us in Proverbs One, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools 
despise wisdom and instruction. And this is why David talks about the heart here. In fact, notice the fool's rejection of God. It is a heart problem, not an intellectual problem. The Nabal fool has a moral problem in the heart, not a mental problem in the head. And here in our psalm, the fool speaks where? Where does he speak? He speaks in his heart. The heart is the controlling center of a person. Listen, he's not speaking intellectually in his mind. This is not an intellectual problem that mankind has. He's speaking in his heart. Why? The heart is the controlling center of the problem. The heart is the thinking part of who you are. It is the part that makes decisions. It's the part that defines us. And so when the fool says in his heart, there is no God, let me tell you, that creed is what really drives his thinking and therefore his living. In other words, in his heart, the fool chooses to reject God and to reject God's rule over his life. He lives as if there is no God. Therefore, God does not matter to him. Fools don't need God, at least they think, and don't want God. They want to live their own lives the way they please. Now, at the same time, please understand, the fool is not a helpless victim here. For he or her knowingly and even consciously commits himself to a life without God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, described this thought process in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. I encourage you to turn there and notice what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 1. He starts out in verse 18, and Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? Well, Paul tells us now. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so Paul says they are without excuse. In other words, all humanity is without excuse. For although they knew God. Here's here's a little insight. God doesn't believe in atheism. There's no such thing. At the core of it. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so according to Paul, fools actually see the majesty of God in the world he created, but they suppress the truth of that evidence. They are fools because they refuse to honor God even though they know he really does exist. Someone once asked the agnostic British philosopher Bertrand Russell, what he would say if, when he died, 
he suddenly found himself standing before God. And Russell replied, you, God, did not give us sufficient evidence. But as A.F. Kirkpatrick writes, God made himself known through the voice of our conscience and in the works of creation, but men would not follow the light of conscience or read the book of nature. It's also interesting, you find a thumbnail sketch of a Nabal fool in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6, where the prophet writes, For fools speak folly. Their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and they spread error, spread error concerning the Lord. And so it's, the, it's clear that the mark of a fool, the chief characteristic, it is not intellectual deficiency, but it is aggressive ungodliness. And this aggressive ungodliness, it has consequences. It plays out in results. David writes in the rest of verse 1, he first says, the fool says in his heart, that's his thinking, there is no God. And now we see his living. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And so when we surrender the knowledge of God, what happens is we open the door to all sorts of depravity. David then goes on, and he lists right here in verse 1, three dimensions of the fool's corruption or sinfulness. Notice with it, me with, notice what, it, what they are quickly here. We see the character of the fool, or the nature of the fool, and David says they are corrupt. In other words, what proceeds from the heart of the fool is moral perversion or corruption. And this word corrupt, it means rotten putrid or decayed this in other words it, this this is the inner result or inner effect of what happens when you deny god or you live as if there is no god you live life without god apart from god and their corruption david says let me tell you it's infectious in other words they are not just corrupt but they infect others and make them corrupt And then, too, we see the behavior of the fool. Their behavior is they do abominable deeds. David's describing the actions that flow from the fool's corrupt heart. Fools refuse to accept the fact that they are accountable to God. And as a result, they do all sorts of perverse things. Why? Because they think to themselves, listen, if there's no God, then why not just do and live as I please? The problem is, when you do and live as you please without being accountable to God or thinking that you are accountable to God, you will default to depravity, to corruption. You think it and then you live it. The way we behave is ultimately rooted in what we think about our holy God. Without God, there is nothing to hold us back from plunging into all sorts of wicked deeds. As one Bible commentator put it, atheism bears its proper fruit in rotten conduct. And then we see the extent of the fool. David says there is none who does good. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet follows that up in Jeremiah 17, 9. He says the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. 
Paul himself says in Romans 7, 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. And David says here in Psalm 14, there is none who does good. This simply means that the best things that the best of us here do are still tainted with selfishness and sin. You're like, what? I, I, I know a neighbor. I know a coworker. They're not believers, and they, they seem to do some good things. Well, even the good deeds of the unbelievers that you know are not, and they do things, listen, they are not truly, quote, good in God's sight because they are not done to God's glory. Paul says we all fall short of the glory of God. And so anything we do that we think is good is still tainted with sin and selfishness. And it's not done to the glory of God. Now, this all seems to be a bit pessimistic, does it not? I mean, is it possible that all humanity denies God and that there is none who does good? Well, notice what God does in verse 2. Look at it. Look what David writes. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. To see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. Now, David's using metaphorical language here. And metaphorically, God conducts a survey of planet Earth. He's looking down to see if anyone has the wherewithal, anyone has the, the spiritual sense, the, just any sense to seek him. After all, God made us. God gives us everything, life and breath. God gives us brains and brawn, homes and health, friends and family, sunrises and sunsets, groceries and gravity. And so the question becomes, will we snub our noses at that God who gives us everything? He has told us in his revealed word how to live life so that we can find joy and satisfaction in this world. And the question is, will we listen to that God or will we be fools who live as if he doesn't exist? So what does God find when he inspects our world? Well, verse 3 tells us. They have all turned aside, speaking of humanity. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so here at God's inspection, we find that God looks down on humanity and he finds that all are corrupted by sin. Now, folks, let me just say, there is no way of overturning this verdict. Now, we read in our country, in our legal system, sometimes verdicts are overturned. That never happens here. There's no overturning this verdict by God on humanity. God himself has checked it out thoroughly. And he finds that all humanity is corrupted by sin. Now, significantly, this is not the first time that the Bible talks about God using figure of speech, looking down to see humanity's corruption. You go to the book of Genesis, and we saw this in our Genesis series, that God looked down to inspect humanity three separate times. Psalm 14 here 
It actually sounds a lot like the beginning of the flood when the same word corrupt occurs three times there in Genesis chapter 6 when God looked down and saw humanity's corruption. God also looked down and saw humanity's corruption at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And a third time, God came down to investigate the sin or the corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah before he destroyed those cities with fire and sulfur in Genesis 18. And of course, God's indictment here of humanity's corruption, it is universal. And so don't miss the categorical language that God uses. He says all, together, none. God's findings, in other words, are all-inclusive. Everyone, he says, has turned away from God. Together, we all are corrupted by sin. There is none who does what is truly good, at least according to God's standard. Now, here's the problem. Because about now, here's our thinking. We paint the picture of a fool as the neighbor who lives next door. Or the co-worker in the office. Or the student I sit next to at school or ride with on the bus. And in our minds, that's the fool. But Paul used Psalm 14 here, this psalm, to make his case that both Jews and Gentiles alike, and when he uses Jews and Gentiles, he is saying all humanity are corrupted by the power of sin. And so no matter how we might think and paint the picture of a fool as the neighbor who lives next door or the coworker in the office, the truth of the matter is that the person I see in the mirror is the fool I know best. Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, there is no, no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so what we see here, the perspective that God is giving to us, is that the fool rejects the very reality of God. But in reality, the whole human race consists of Nabals. We are all guilty of playing the fool. As P.C. Craigie writes, commentator, the fool is not a rare subspecies within the human race. All human beings are fools apart from the very wisdom of God. And James Boyce adds, left to ourselves, our minds run to utter foolishness, and we act the fool too. But in Christ, in Christ, there's our hope. In Christ, we find a wisdom from God which is able to save us and lead us in the way of righteousness, which is what the Psalms are all about. You see, the problem also is not that there's not enough religion in our world today. Listen, many people we know are religious. But they do not want the God of the Bible, the only true living God. Many people reject the real God, the one true living God, by multiplying false gods. But religious activity that does not come to God through Jesus Christ, listen, is an active denial of God. Therefore, by definition, the essence of atheism, which means 
that the opposite of atheism is not religion. The opposite of atheism is true Christianity, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God's conclusion is that every one of us, and that includes every one of us here in this auditorium, apart from his saving grace in Jesus Christ, we behave and live as practical atheists. So the folly of the fool first rejects the reality of God. But his folly does not stop there. It continues. And what we see, number two, is that the fool troubles the very people of God. The fool troubles or even oppresses the people of God. You see, committed to a life without God, the fool not only rejects the reality of God, but he also opposes and troubles the people of God. The fool is blind spiritually blind to the judgment that is hanging over his head. And so they live as if nothing is going to happen to them. I'm not accountable to God. I can do whatever I want, get away with whatever I want. But as we see in verses 4 through 6 here, the fool's devastating ignorance leads to a very terrifying miscalculation. Notice this. Notice it in your notes, coming up on the screen. In their ignorance, the fool acts wickedly toward God's people. You see, the fool says, no, God. But notice what God says now. God speaks in verse 4. And God says, speaking to the fools, have they no knowledge? That's ignorance. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. In other words, what God is saying here, if you want to see where the folly of the fool works itself out, where their ignorance of God and a turning away from his ways works itself out, God says, just look what happens to my people. These fools, these evildoers that David calls them here, they eat up my people like they eat bread. Now that phrase, eating bread, is a graphic word picture to describe how the wicked feed on God's people. The world, in other words, swallows up the people of God and they think no more of it than scarfing down their lunch. You see, for the wicked, devouring God's people is a casual thing. It's a normal thing. It's a daily occurrence, just like eating bread is a daily occurrence. Sadly, though, what we find here in Psalm 14, it is still very relevant today. Nothing has changed since David wrote this. The people of God are continually being swallowed up even today. Right now, we probably live in the worst time of persecution in the history of the Christian church. And the reality is, the travesty is, most Americans don't even know that. In the first century, Christians huddled in the catacombs in Rome out of fear of being persecuted by the governing authorities of Rome. We're now living on a day where on a scale trumps that. In the Middle East, in East Asia, North Africa, North Korea, there is massive, whole-scale persecution of Christians simply for believing in Jesus Christ. And God says, that's what happens when people turn their backs on him. 
The very first place that it shows up is hatred of his people and a hostility toward his people. And that's what we see today even. But don't miss what else God says about the fool. The chief characteristic of those who reject God is they don't what? They not, and it's two sides of the same coin. David says they first deny there's a God. They reject his existence. And then on the other side of the coin, God himself says, this chief characteristic, they do not call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because they refuse to believe in him. They reject him. They don't think they need the Lord. Therefore, they don't call upon the Lord. Now, what's interesting is what God says about the godly line of Seth back in Genesis chapter 4. According to verse 26 in that chapter, the chief characteristic of the godly or the righteous line of Seth, guess what it is? We saw this in our Genesis series. They call upon the name of the Lord. And now we see here in Psalm 14 that the opposite is true for the wicked. They refuse to call upon the Lord. And so instead of praying to God for their salvation, these wicked fools, these Nabal fools, simply pray on the godly. But these fools, let me tell you, have made a terrifying miscalculation in judgment. Notice Second point here, because when God shows up on the scene, when God shows his allegiance, the fool will be gripped with holy terror. The wicked who troubled God's people, they meet with something they had not counted on. That these seemingly helpless people, these poor people, these people that can't stand and fight for themselves, it appears, they have a defender. David writes in verses 5 through 6, look at it. He says, they, there, he says, there, they are in great terror. Why? For God is with the generation of the righteous. That is a beautiful, beautiful saying right there. And then it goes on and says in verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. You may be wondering, why is the wicked so terrified right here? Because what happens is they discover that God is with the generation of the righteous. And they also discover that he, that is God, is going to punish those who reject him and trouble his people. Apparently, they didn't see the sign that read, beware of sheep. And the meaning of that is you touch God's people and you find yourself sooner or later having to deal with their shepherd, God. Make no mistake about it. When it finally dawns on the foolish that they have mistreated, they have troubled, they have oppressed the people of God, they will be terrified with the terror of God's holy judgment. So yes, The very presence of God terrifies the wicked. But, but, he is what? To his own people. He is a refuge because he is with the generation of the righteous. And that is good news for God's people then and even now today. Why? Because though the 
quote, poor in David's word. And in the context here of Psalm 14, what's in view here with the poor is the material poor. But by application, what's also in view is that those who are, quote, poor in spirit, those who are persecuted, like Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when you look out at the world, and perhaps you feel it yourself, the hostility, the trouble, the persecution, the hatred towards you as a as a righteous one, as a Christ follower, and you ask yourself, what's going on? What's happening here, especially to God's people? Because it looks like everything is falling apart. And we want to say in those moments, where's God in all of this? And here in Psalm 14, we find hope. That the Lord is a refuge for his people. That is glorious news that we hang on to, that we claim and we remember and we keep in the forefront of our minds as we walk through this world and we anticipate the final day when Jesus comes as the sovereign judge of the world. In fact, our world outreach theme this year is on this right here, a refuge for the nations, that God is a refuge and he has provided that refuge in Jesus Christ for all peoples all across the world, all nations. He is a refuge through Jesus Christ, and he is that for us today. And so when it looks like things are falling apart, when you cry out for justice because you are experiencing injustice, and when you wonder, where is God? God says, listen, I'm here. I am your refuge And so don't give up on God when everything seems to be falling apart. Don't forget who God is. Remember what we learned last Sunday. He's the sovereign judge of the world. And when wicked fools trouble the the wicked and the righteous, remember God is the generation of the righteous. God is our refuge. God will protect his own people and God will judge the wicked. The folly of the fool. He rejects the reality of God. But he doesn't stop there, and he troubles the people of God. And as a result of all that, notice number three, the fool ultimately disregards the salvation of God. Whereas those who know God, they long to see God, and they long for the salvation of God. The fool, though, wants nothing to do with that. The fool wants nothing to do with God. And so he disregards his salvation altogether. The fool thinks that he can make it in life without God. He thinks to himself, I don't need God. I don't need his salvation. And the tragic reality is that those who reject God in this life will spend eternity apart from God in the next life. And there they will be able to honestly say in hell, there is no God here. But David, David longs for what the fool disregards. Look at this. The righteous. And that's David. He's part of it. Long for the great day of salvation to come. David ends with this fervent prayer of hope in verse 7. It is beautiful. Look at it. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, 
Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And so as David looks at the wickedness around him, he knows that the only hope for Israel is the salvation of God. And so David cries out to God, and he makes this one request of God. Bring salvation. Save us. Deliver us. Give us a reason, God, to be glad. Give us a reason to rejoice. Reverse the fortunes of your people and send us salvation. And then the wording he uses, Zion. Zion is God's holy hill. It's the place where God's presence dwelt in David's day. And it is the place where God has established his king. In fact, you find that truth, you go back to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6, and David tells us that in reference to Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, salvation for all humanity comes out of where? Out of Zion. David was the king of Israel in Zion then. And from his line came the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when David prays here for salvation to come out of Zion, you know what he's longing for? Ultimately, he's longing for the Messiah. The king whom God has set over all the nations to be a refuge for them. And what's interesting here is that the name Jesus comes from this very word that David uses in verse 7, salvation. That is the name of Jesus. When Jesus was born, he was given the name Jesus. Why? Because according to Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, he would save his people from their sins. Their corruption, their foolishness. Can't help but think when Jesus read Psalm 14 during his days on this earth that he might have said, yes, I have come. I am the Savior of my people. I am your refuge. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate answer to David's longing for salvation. Now, don't shut your minds off just yet. Because all of this brings us to one very important question. What's your bio? What is your bio right now? And to use Facebook terminology, we might ask it this way. What is your current profile? And everyone has a bio or profile. On Facebook, you can post all the good stuff about you on your profile, and even then on all your pages. And you can hide all the bad stuff about your life and about who you are. But there's no hiding our bio or our profile from God. He knows who you are. And so from the perspective of Psalm 14 here, I ask us again, what's your bio? Are you a fool who lives as if there is no God? Are you the practical atheist here today? Or are you part of the generation of the righteous who's been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And all of us, get this, here's the deal. All of us, everyone here today, from teenagers, you guys, all the way to our senior adults, 
all of us are born with the same bio. We are the fool of Psalm 14 who lives as if there is no God. In fact, you go to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul says the very same thing about us as he writes our bio in Ephesians chapter 2. And we read there in Ephesians 2 that we were dead. In verse 1 there, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, corpses respond to nothing, least of all to the gospel. And so we're dead. That's part of our bio. We were dominated there in Ephesians 2. In verse 2, we walked under the authority of the ruler of the air. And in verse 3, we lived in the passions of our flesh. And even more, we were damned. That's our bio. In verse 3, it says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so that is our bio from birth. We are lifeless, we are helpless, and we are hopeless. That is our profile from birth. But then Paul writes. He writes these, these words of hope here in verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2, where he says, but God, but God, and God's the one who makes all the difference. But God, God intervenes. God comes down and he reaches into the foolishness of our heart and he opens up our eyes to see who we are in our bio from birth. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so here's the point. If you want to change your bio, your profile, what do you need to do? You've got to turn to God. You must respond to him. Only God can change your bio. I know. You can go on your device and you can change your Insta and Facebook bio in a heartbeat. But your life bio, you cannot change on your own. Only God can change your bio from the fool to the generation of the righteous who's been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Jesus, in other words, is the answer to the folly of the fool. In fact, I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, speaking about Jesus Christ, he became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so when we were foolish enough from birth to say there is no God and then to live like that, listen to me, in his grace, in his mercy, God reached out to us and he gave us his son to make us wise and to make us alive together with Christ. But you will not be ready to change your bio and welcome Jesus as your Savior until you are ready to humbly admit your sin and you begin to feel the weight of God's judgment on your life. Only then will you be ready to pray with David, oh, that salvation would come to me. Only then will you be ready to turn to Jesus and to cry out to him and say, Jesus, wash away my sin and save me. Make me a part of the generation of the righteous. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, perhaps God is speaking to you. And as we prepare for our response time, the instrumentals are going to come and play through a chorus and Man, perhaps your God is just speaking to you. He's tugging on your heart and 
You're like, man, this is me. I'm the fool, but I don't want to be that fool. I want to be part of the generation of righteous. And perhaps you're ready to change your bio. You're ready to turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior. And if that's your heart's desire, then do just that. In prayer, right where you're seated, cry out to him. Admit your sin. And by faith, ask him to forgive you and save you, trusting in him alone to make you a part of the generation of the righteous. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word here in Psalm 14. Help us to see that we are all fools apart from you. And give us the grace to see that you have sent salvation in Jesus Christ and to turn to him as our Savior and King. In his name we pray. Amen. The instrumentalists are going to play through a course, and as they do, won't you respond where you're seated?